Accutron Watches present The Accutron Show, a time travel through American culture, with your hosts David Graver and Indrani. Visit AccutronWatch.com and discover the brand that has made American history with an all-new proprietary next-generation electrostatic energy movement. Accutron. It's not a timepiece. It's a conversation piece. I'm all for augmented intelligence. I mean, I think there are a lot of things that machines do better than we will ever do. But there are a lot of things we do better than any machine we can ever conceive of. And the idea of trying to replicate human, the human brain, seems odd to me. The person you heard at the top of the show is today's guest, David Ewan Duncan, award-winning journalist and author of The Voyage of Sorcerer 2. He's here to talk about this new book, but first up, me, David Graver, my co-host Andrani, here on a new episode of The Accutron Show. Stay tuned. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover our iconic Spaceview 2020 collection, recreating the stunning visual impact of the original open-dial design, combined with an all-new electrostatic energy movement. Time just changed. Again. The Accutron Spaceview 2020. Indrani, I'm so happy to be back here with you for another episode of the Accutron Show with a guest that's very dear to you. I'm so excited about the work that David Ewing Duncan is doing. What bridges AI, robots, and microbiome? You know, how do you bring these things together in in one place? And and that's that's what he's been exploring. That, it's his intellect. It's yes. his it's his will to tell these stories, to tell science, in a way that can perhaps influence people to change the world. You spent time with David during New York Climate Week. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about what your participation was like. Climate Week was extraordinary. Seeing so many brilliant people coming together to to attack these issues from different perspectives, and I was fortunate to be a co-convener of the Science Summit at the United Nations, held at the Harvard Club, with the support of Accutron. And it was really exciting to hear David and many other thinkers, scientists, indigenous knowledge keepers, uh, looking at these questions from their different perspectives and coming together. I'd be curious to know if David is optimistic about the future, but I'm also, while we're here, are you optimistic about the future? I am very optimistic. Why? I, I just believe that if we put all of our attention into solving these challenges, there's nothing that humanity cannot do. And we've done incredible things so far. So this is a problem we've created. And I truly believe that we have the capacity to solve it as long as we combine our willpower. Something that I think is really fascinating about David we're all familiar with climate change. It is, it is on the tip of everyone's tongue. It, we're all aware of what is looming. But David is approaching it in his new book through the idea of the oceanic microbiome, which is not a, not words we normally hear together. So I was very excited to learn about his take and his scientific experience going down this path. I think there's a spiritual side to this idea of a microbiome. Spending time with indigenous people talking about the way that there's life in, in the entire universe, it's all interconnected. And now scientists are starting to find that that's actually can be seen through their studies as well. I think David also aligns a lot with 
our mission, we were both writers, filmmakers, documentarians. We're all trying to convey stories. And he's he's on a mission to do that. And he's written for Vanity Fair. He's hosted television programs. He's really like on the cusp of media and using media to make the world better. It's fascinating to have 12 books and at the same time constantly be pushing the the envelope of exploring areas that, that we don't really think about in our daily life. Well, I'm excited to learn and I'm excited to learn with you. And I hope maybe we can elicit some change. I hope people pay attention and climate change is among us. It's it's a part of our consideration and it, it will be even more so for our children and our grandchildren. So David has the ability to sort of spread the word. I think that we are all pioneers in a in a very new world and and having the courage to understand what that world is about, I think, is is really, really inspiring. I must say, uh, my microbiome, I think it's kind of in order. And what about yours? <laughs> oh, well, I, I've been traveling a lot, so my microbiome is, is very diverse. Well, it's very nice to see you. It's very nice that we're both in New York City together. And stay tuned for this episode of the Accutron Show. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover our Accutron DNA collection. Reimagined for a new generation, the Accutron DNA combines breakthrough technology, precise engineering, and modern aesthetics to achieve a new level of technical excellence. The Accutron DNA, the new face of time for those who blaze new trails. Welcome back to an episode of the Accutron Show with today's guest, best-selling novelist, best-selling author, and award-winning journalist, David Ewing Duncan. David, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's so exciting, David, seeing all of your work and the different ways that you bring together science and history and, and humanity and, and climate action, which is so dear to, to our hearts here. Being here in Climate Week in, in New York, celebrating and actuating how we can create the change what are your thoughts this year? Do, do you feel something changing? Well, it's interesting. It's the first time I've actually been here for Climate Week, although I've thought about this and covered it even you know, from when I was a child because my mother was an environmentalist. And so I grew up with this. But, um, you know, I think I go through what everybody does. There's a certain anxiety. I'm like, you know, it's, it's an existential moment for our, you know, for our species and our planet and this ecosystem that we depend on. But I am feeling a lot of really positive energy here in New York. And obviously, a lot of people here, you know, want to help. But um, I was at a meeting a couple of days ago with uh, young people for UNICEF. And they were reporting that uh, younger people surveyed around the world are feeling eco-anxious, like a lot of them, almost 80%. But they're also feeling eco-optimistic. So what is going on with that? I, you know, th that, that dichotomy, I think, really captures this moment. Climate change is on the tip of everyone's tongue. It's in everyone's mind right now. But through your new book, I received my first introduction to this idea of the ocean's microbiome. Can you tell me how you went down this path and how this became such an area of concern? Well, I appreciate that. I mean, when I say the word microbiome, everybody goes, either what's that or that your sounds stomach. kind of boring, right? <laughs> right? It's in your stomach. Yeah. Yes. Well, actually, we can use that analogy. So the book is about this invisible world that connects all life on our planet. And very few people even know it really exists. 
and there are more microbes than stars in the universe. I mean, it's such a huge number. In fact, they are the masters of our planet. I mean, we are just one you know, small species compared to this, and they've been around for billions of years. They terraformed our planet. That's why there's oxygen in the atmosphere. And what we are managing to do it, with our mere 8 billion humans, which is a t you know, tiny little number compared to the vastness of the microbiome, um, we are managing to change the microbiome in, in a matter of a few decades. And in fact, to use the stomach analogy, a lot of people know you have a microbiome in your gut and it actually helps you digest food. It does a lot of things you know, that are really good for you. And in fact, you wouldn't survive very long without them. Um, but if you sit and eat junk food week after week, you change your microbiome. I mean, you do a lot of bad things to your body, but one of the things you do is you actually change the good bacteria to bad bacteria, meaning it then does damage to you, and it can affect lots of systems in your body. So think about that with this vast environmental microbiome. We are feeding it junk food like carbon and phosphates and other chemicals, um, all the pollutants that we put. And the book is mostly about the ocean because I have a co-author named Craig Venner, who's a major scientist. And he spent years scouring the world looking for microbes. And he kind of rewrote what we know about the microbiome. Um, but, you know, you, you imagine this microbiome can exist in all kinds of different Climates. It can literally exist in volcanic vents, in glaciers. I mean, it can adapt. It'll be fine. But the ecosystem that supports us may not be. If we change the microbiome, we turn it from good bacteria and other microbes into bad. It's really fascinating. And, and it's so exciting to celebrate the launch of your book. Uh, how, is, how is that for you as a, <laughs> as a writer? Oh, it's, always, it's fun. I mean, I've written other books. And it's, it's always... I mean, when you're in the middle of a book or a film or something like that, you wonder if you're ever going to finish. And it's just, you know, I mean, you love it and you love that you have the opportunity to do it. But wow, it's just so much work. And I always, you know, it's a gigantic, it's like a double, triple marathon. But when you actually finish and you cross that finish line, you know, you do have to savor it. And I used to be the type of, you know, kind of high energy person, like I'm on to the next project. But I'm, I've kind of... You know, train myself to take a moment, and that's kind of what I'm in right now. With this book, I mean, the core of it is science, and it's about protecting the future of our planet. However, you infuse it with not a sense of adventure, but with storytelling to help convey your mission. How do you bring science and storytelling together? Well, that's the essence of how we communicate. I mean, scientists communicate a little bit differently because it's about data. It's about, you know, scientific method, which is kind of a story. You know, you have a hypothesis and then you experiment and then you come up with a conclusion. But they speak a little bit different language. But you can connect them up. And, you know, I'm not a scientist by training. And, you know, but I've spent a lot of time with scientists. And I don't know. I, I first choose scientists who can tell stories. So that's the easy way to, to do it. But I don't know, it's, it's, I love interpreting things, and no matter what it was. I mean, I've been a political reporter, I was an adventure travel reporter, so kind of interpreting what I was seeing around the world. Um, and it's, it's exciting to me to learn it 
and I'm the guy that never shuts up about explain, you know, telling stories about this and that. Um, and I've known Andrani for a while. She probably has picked up on that. Um, although Andrani, you do love to do you love to do that too. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. So um, translating this in it, these very important stories, like the one I was just describing, and many others. I mean, you know, genetic engineering. You know, all, all of these. You know, the ethics of it, the science of it. I mean, these are some of the most important stories. You know, in in the world, and most people, most writer writers don't take time to really delve into it. And I was educated by some of the great scientists because you know I I was working for outlets that allowed me, you know, ABC News or Vanity Fair, or whatever. I could get in to talk to these people, and they would sit there and go, okay. I'm going to take a minute here, turn off your, you know, your audio device, and I'm going to teach you genetics. <laughs> and so I had like, you know, some of the most famous geneticists in the world sit down with a whiteboard and show me. So anyway, um, but they were, the point is that they were telling me the stories and they were translating it for me. And so I'm kind of the conduit for that. And I love it. And, you know, bring, hopefully anyway, bring some poetry to this because it is, I mean, it's extraordinary. It, it's art what these people are doing. They don't think of it that way oftentimes. But so it's all about stories. I love that description. And and translate seems to be a really uh, such a, a useful word in this context, because I think so often these different kinds of knowledge, uh, people speak different languages and, and they don't communicate. So it was really fun having you at the at the Science Summit at the United Nations and, and bringing together different kinds of storytellers and with indigenous mm -hmm. stories and Carlos Nobre, the Nobel Prize winner. And it was really interesting to see how your research and your work kind of ties all of these areas together. And what were your thoughts about how we can progress as a society if, if we can find a way to translate or to to collaborate uh, in, a, in a more in-depth kind of way? Well, this is a crucial qu question. I mean, you know, in fact, being here at Climate Week and being immersed in the science and, and talking to people on all, all ends of the spectrum of how you would answer that from pessimist to optimist, um, I mean, we don't, I mean, the good news is about climate change, we know how to fix it. It's actually, this is not, as they say, rocket science, although that may be part of the solution. <laughs> but um, so, you know, we know that solar, wind, I mean, we have renewable energies. I mean, the key thing right now, and by the way, I didn't really explain the microbiome of the oceans, especially, um, we're drowning them in carbon right now. And the microbiome, there's something called phytoplankton. You probably heard of that plankton. So they uh, they live on the surface of the of the oceans, all over the oceans. And they're bacteria, they're algae, you know, but they're all microscopic. They produce 60 to 80 percent of the oxygen that we breathe in the atmosphere. In fact, we have an oxygen atmosphere on Earth because they terraformed the planet, um, and you know, billions of years ago. And we are drowning them in carbon. They eat carbon, and actually, they sequester about 30 percent of the carbon. But we're we're changing that balance, and we're actually beginning to slowly kill them off. And it's not a big deal yet, but it's getting there and it's moving rapidly. Also, the ocean currents that are affected by the warming of the oceans, they bring the nutrients up from the bottom of the sea to feed, you know, like this is called a carbon marine pump or just the marine pump. This is a planetary system that we are, you know, messing up because we're messing with the currents and there are areas of the ocean now where this cycle is beginning to break down. So, 
You asked me, though, about solutions, but I just wanted to kind of lay that out there. But again, we know how to fix this. I mean, and we've got uh, you know, if I didn't think it before, after I did this book, we've got to stop spewing carbon in the in the atmosphere, and we're all complicit in this. We all, you know, we, even even those of us that are you know really wanting to fix it, because that's that's how we live. That's how our civilization operates right now, and we are slowly moving the dial, but it's too slow. I mean, it's really, really almost a desperate situation. When. My biome is a mess. I can take a probiotic. <laughs> if you could give a call to action, spewing carbon is something that a society does, but if you could give a call to action to one person out there that they could tell a friend to do, how would you encourage them to step up and participate? Well, honestly, we all just need to do the small things. Again, we know this. This is, you know, I mean, you know, my kids when they were small and they had their, you know, kind of environmental day, you know, where they learned about carbon, they came home and unplugged everything in the house. <laughs> and... I, I had to break it to them that plugging it back in actually takes more power than leaving it on. <laughs> but it was hard to convince them of that because they were told to, and they were became eco warriors, you know. And that, but so I mean that may seem tiny, but gestures like that, I mean, you know, electric cars are going to be super helpful. Although, I mean, basically eight billion people on the planet, and what we need to maintain even a basic civilization, it, it's going to take. There, there's always going to be trade offs. Right now, the trade-offs are unacceptable. So we will still, but you know, driving electric cars are better than driving combustion engines. Although they do produce, you know, carbon because there are, you know, the electricity has to come from somewhere. And also, there's an issue with the batteries and the waste and all of that. But you know, let's let's figure. Let's do one thing at a time. So buy an electric car. Um, you know, think about. I mean, I still in my house go around and turn off all the lights all the time. I mean, it's kind of simple. Um, but, you know, again, we kind of know how to do it. If everybody did that, you know, it, it would help. I'd love to know your thoughts on, on the bigger macro changes, because yeah. I actually believe that uh, that we can do much better than that. We can make systemic changes in the way we source yeah. our energy, in the way our, our our things are managed. But that's, 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 we'll save that for another conversation. Well, no, we can, I mean, I was answering, you know, like yeah. individuals, but one thing we need to do, there's a philosophical answer to that too. I mean, we need to kind of get over this, you know, some of this lifestyle that we lead. I mean, jetting around in planes that, you know, spew carbon, all of that. I mean, we got to figure out, and that's where technology comes in. It's not that, I mean, you know, I mean, I love the modern world, but, you know, I think we, we all need to kind of think this out collectively. And we, we happen to be, I'm a historian, as I said, and, you know, the world, the history works in cycles. And unfortunately, we're in a, in a real dead zone politically right now. I mean, we've had better times, you know, in fact, when the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, uh, EPA were founded in the early 70s, there was much more uh, focus in Washington and in governments around the world to addressing some of these issues, and they were they were better at it. Um, you know, that happened to be a moment. Now, now we're in a moment. But we need to collectively as a civilization and as a society figure this out. And everybody has to, yeah, we all have to play our part, but we also need leadership, which is really lacking right now, at least in the, you know, in governments. It's it's here in New York during Climate Week, there's a lot of leaders, and that's just wonderful. But we all have to kind of get on the same page, too, which, you know, we can talk about more if you want to. But, I mean, there's a partisan divide that's, that's causing an issue with this, too. But, you know, these are always... I, I mean, I love to study humans because we will never have a perfect time. So we have to deal with what we have here. But um, anyway, that's a bigger kind of macro 
least philosophical take on that question. Thank you, David. Honestly, it's very insightful, something that we can as individuals and we as a society can do. We'll be back in a moment after a word from Accutron. Great. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Discover the new Spaceview Evolution Timepiece Collection, a true design evolution of the original Accutron Spaceview 2020, thanks to a new dial for an entirely new look. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover the many timeless spaces of Accutron. Time just changed again. We're back to the Accutron Show with David Ewing Duncan, and we're so excited to have you here with your new book. I'd love to ask you, how does this connect to your previous book, which was also really timely and fascinating? Well, again, I, I feel very lucky as a journalist, as a storyteller, to be able to kind of have a journey. And I, you know, e- each of the books, each of the projects kind of, in my mind, seem like they make sense. But the last book was on robots. So the, the current book is on the microbiome of the planet. They do seem a, a little bit different. But I think one of the things that connects them and much of what I do is they involve this issue of technology versus how we absorb these technologies. I mean, we as a species are extraordinary in how we can make things and create things. And we also have a propensity to learn from our mistakes, which is a kind of an evolved trait that's given us our civilization in a way. Uh, but there's also you know, have we learned enough? You know, how, how how can we apply this? And how how can we take these technologies, which tend to be basically neutral until they're used, and they can be used for good or bad? I mean, it's almost every technology. I mean, you go back to fire, the discovery of fire. I'm sure there were like pro-fire people and anti-fire people. <laughs> True. And yeah, there's probably a partisan divide in the village. Like, yeah. we, can, we can cook meat, we can sit up yeah, you know, night and draw cave just, paintings. Yeah. destroy everything. It's going to kill us all. So, I mean, this is not a new debate. So that's what links up a lot of my work. And, you know, trying to reframe that story, which is a, a never-ending story and an ancient story, really. Um, so the last book was called Talking to Robots, and it it really came out of, you know, I'm mostly a science, life science writer, but as AI has moved into everything, I mean, one really important area it's moving into is life sciences. And, you know, we are so, we yeah, every biological organism, especially humans, are incredibly complicated. And so we need these these tools, these these computers and other things to help us make sense of all the all the data. So but that got me thinking, of course, to you know, AI. And the book came out four years ago, the paperback just came out last year. Um, but we're now, you know, buzzing again about ChatGPT and some yes. new, um, which we, which I sort of predict or talk about in the book. I, I wasn't the only one, but um, it, it did happen faster than anybody thought it would. But that book, it's part fiction and part nonfiction. So it's kind of experiment. And it all is, it's, it's 24 robots. There's like a journalism bot. There's an intimacy bot. There's a teddy bear bot for kids. There's, I don't know, any number of other bots. Doc bot, warrior bot, which is about automated warfare. And so each of the chapters are kind of like short stories, and they're all told from the future by a narrator who knows how things turned out. So he's talking to us in the present. So the fictional part of the stories in the future, and the nonfiction part is what he's telling us and what how I describe the our present day is all 
nonfiction. But one of the things that I was trying to really work on with that book is we don't know how the, what the future is going to be. I mean, it could be almost anything. We can imagine it could be really horrible or it could be really great. So that's what I did in the book. I, some of the futures are really wonderful. We overcome, you know, whatever difficulties we were having. I mean, everybody in the robot that took my job yes. chapter, everybody is fired, including the head of Google and Apple and everything. And we decide we don't like that. And so we go back to the, you know, the Google guys go back to their garages and they build a new kind of AI that doesn't, you know, destroy jobs. So anyway, um, that was fun. Um, and it really, the point of that was, though, that we can imagine different futures and that allows us to be able to shape, you know, how things go. I mean, it doesn't prevent like pandemics coming out of nowhere, but it helps us get through these these problems. And I think it does. I mean, hopefully anyway, you're imagining a really positive future and we can make that happen. A lot of magazines have come out and said that the only AI assistants that their publications and their writers use are Grammarly as a guide for grammar. Um, and they are avoiding the use of ChatGPT. Yes. How do you feel about the idea of journalists or even writers in general utilizing um, AI assistance or AI writing tools? Well, so ChatGPT right now, I, I'm i not that worried about as a creative writer because it's not ready. Agreed. And we are not in the final wave. I mean, technology works in waves. And you want to, you know, if you're like, say, an investor, you wanted to be there when Google came, not the f six or seven waves before that. We never, we don't even remember those companies. And ChatGPT is the same thing. This is a, maybe, you know, an early wave. I mean, I am actually more worried right now, and I wrote about this in the book, with robots and AI being dumb and stupid than I am about it being like, you know, Terminator are going to take over the world. Yes. And because right now you have to program literally every possible scenario into, and, and it, you know, and like there was the Boeing 737, was it Max 8 that crashed? Do you remember that? Yes. Okay. That was one of the most sophisticated robots ever built in AI systems. It, it crashed because of one small data input that any human, and in fact, the pilots were desperately trying to write the plane. It was telling the plane it had to dive. And that was not that was inaccurate, and so you lost the plane, and um, that's a kind of horrible and tragic example. But um, you know, in other words, this we need the big danger now is is using these things that aren't quite ready. Some of it is, um, but I'm also very optimistic. I mean, especially in biology. I mean, again, we can't understand the human body and and move to the next level of say predictive medicine, you know, and until we learn to integrate genetics and all these other factors, microbiome, all these other factors. And we need AI for that. But even in, well, obviously, you, I'd say even in medicine, but there's some serious ethical potential issues. And the fact that they're scraping data from the internet to teach, I mean, would you want to teach your kids from everything on the internet? No. 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 Okay. So I, I'm not sure that's a great idea. <laughs> and I think we'll refine that. But so I'm not that worried about it other than it, it's misuse right now. And, you know, like every other writer, I hate to admit this, but I ask it to write about, you know, in, in my style, like David Ewing Duncan. I, did, yeah, I was going to see if it even knew me, but it, it, it did because I'm on the Internet. And it was so weird reading <laughs> something. And it was not my, you know, I mean, it was only really kind of weirdly. Superficially. Yeah, yeah, superficially. And it also got facts wrong. Yeah, yeah. 
So it's, it's it's so interesting to me because as we grapple with the the enormous potential of these these kinds of technologies, I think it makes us also have to articulate what our values are. Right when when we're outsourcing value judgments to a system, but we haven't agreed amongst ourselves what those values should be. So even with driverless cars, I mean, it raised wonderful questions, I felt, in, in the decision making that we all take for granted on a day to day basis. You know, who who would you who is more expendable, a grandmother or, or you know, a, a kid like those kinds of terrible questions, but questions that we are all asking ourselves every day. No, it's totally true. And, you know, th- this is so I lived in Silicon Valley. I mean, at least in San Francisco, but yeah, I was kind of covering Silicon Valley for many years in California. And, you know, there was an idea there that somehow if you made some brilliant innovation technology, you push the button and it would do better than we would as humans. Okay. Let's, I mean, I still have friends out there who believe that AI should be running the government, for instance. I mean, <laughs> in pretty much anything. And, you know, it's obviously a techno optimism. Um, but, you know, I, I'm sorry, but no. <laughs> I mean, because it's humans that are designing this, okay? And we don't need, yeah, like like you say, Indrani, I mean, we don't know the answer to these. I mean, and, and it changes too. I mean, you know, as time goes on, um, I mean, would we want have had rules around diversity from 100 years ago? No. And, you know, we all know that there are biases written into the fundamental programming of Indeed. AI. Uh, for instance, I mean, there's lots of other issues. And... I don't think we'll ever completely work that out, but I always, I mean, well, back in the 50s when they came up with the term artificial intelligence, um, AI, AI also meant, in fact, it, it more, more people thought of AI as meaning augmented intelligence than artificial intelligence. And there was literally a meeting at Dartmouth College in 1954 where these terms, Marvin Minsky was there and others, kind of the famous people in the, at that time. And I'm all for augmented intelligence. I mean, I think there are a lot of things that machines do better than we will ever do. But there are a lot of things we do better than any machine we can ever conceive of. And the idea of trying to replicate human, the human brain, seems odd to me. And so I want the doctor who, you know, maybe has something in his ear. And as I'm describing, he doesn't have to sit there at a keyboard and look up stuff, which, you know, so many of them do now when you go in for your checkup. You know, there's an AI that's kind of listening in and, you know, kind of giving him, you know, what he needs to know or she. um, And that is what I'm hoping happens. And, you know, driverless cars, I don't know, they're probably inevitable in some ways, but um, I I would like to try them anyway on, you know, like interstates where you have to go, for, like a truck goes from one city to another or something like that. They're still a little weird. I don't know if you, have you ridden in one? I, I've seen them. But yeah, I mean, like, yeah, yeah I haven't, but yeah. I've been I, in a hands-free Tesla before where my friend yeah. was um, putting on his tie and the car was driving us to uh, to SpaceX at the time. <laughs> that's true. That's all, that's all true. I have a friend too, who actually, he knows Elon Musk and he got a very early one and he was taking us out in Boston driving around and it was not, I, I think it's better than now, but I mean, you go, look at this, I'm, I'm not holding there. And we were like about to run into the car ahead of us, but I think mm-hmm. it's better than that now. <laughs> I'm curious as a fellow writer, have you had a best writing experience when you were in it, when you knew you were writing something that you were so moved or you were in flow state and you were inspired and you thought you could change the world even? Well, change the world, I had that. But in terms of the flow state, um, you know, lots of times. I mean, you know, I, I guess when you're a professional writer, right, you know, or, or filmmaker or whatever, I mean, you have to kind of 
learn how to optimize that. And I, um, I wrote a piece for Vanity Fair last year on on psychedelics and and writing. And I got long haul COVID. I I couldn't write, and I ended up getting rescued by psychedelics. And the piece is called Stolen Words, uh, COVID, Ketamine, and Me. And I, I address that question because it's always been fascinating to me. There is a voice that's sort of – I don't know if this happens to you guys, but – when you're really in the in the in the zone, it's almost like somebody is telling you the story, and maybe it's in your subconscious, or maybe somebody is telling you the story. I don't yes. know, especially fiction. And you know, I've had fiction writers. I, I'm writing my first novel right now, so this is a, an experience for me. It's a little different than nonfiction, but um, I once had Gordon Parks, you know, the famous photographer, yes. who was also an amazing writer, and he was a friend of my family's. And I used to stay with him in New York when I was in college, and he was writing one of his novels, and he was telling me, you know, I'm trying to kill off this character, but she won't die. <laughs> she needs to die for the story, but she's not. And I said, what are you talking about, Gordon? And, and he said, I, and that's when he told me, he said, you know, I'm not writing the story. Something is telling me this story. My characters come to life. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, and, and what happened when I had that go away was horrible. And it threw me into a depression, actually, which mm -hmm. is, you know, the psychedelics help with um, a lot. And so, you know, it's a magical thing that can go away fairly easily. But in terms of your, the other part of the question, um, you know, I guess we could tell stories to ourselves or our friends. But when you when you actually that's your job to do, especially as a journalist or documentary filmmaker or whatever, I don't think you're doing it to try to affect change you're trying to send a message yes and you know again my mother was you know an act activist and you know i watched her you know being you know heckled and and yelled at and you know i mean you know being an environmentalist in kansas where i grew up in the 60s was not the most popular thing in the 70s um but she got the message out and you know that i think that's when you hit that moment and, you know, the microbiome of the planet, this this new book, it has been incredibly gratifying just this week because people are hearing about it. And here in Climate Week, people want to hear about it. And I'm being asked to speak here and there and, you know, do different things. I mean, literally like, you know, like people, okay, can you come to our meeting in two hours? And, you know, that's wonderful as a writer. That's why I guess that's why you do it. Can I ask you a question about putting all this together, the microbiome and and this that voice, the spiritual essence or whatever we want to call it? I'm very curious because I'm spending time in the Amazon with the indigenous people mm -hmm. and talking about this mycelium, the, the, that everything is alive, everything is is imbued with intentionality in some interesting ways. And, and I'm, I'm very curious of your thoughts. Does the microbiome have some kind of a... Uh, almost a, a a planet governing essence. Well, I suggest in the book that it might be a superorganism and a superintelligence. I mean, you know, there's some biologists that believe that as much as we think we have free will and that, you know, we're having, I could answer a question one way or the other, that all of this is sort of determined by our biology and the microbiome and other kind of other for physical forces at work. So the microbiome is the ultimate expression of that. 
I mean, it's so, it literally is, you know, they used to say the, the butterfly flapping its wing. I used to call it Peking, but now we call it Beijing. Um, you know, it's going to affect the weather in Colorado or something like that. I mean, the microbiome is the same way, but it's, it's tiny and every little element of that. And at the end of the book, get a little philosophical about um, we have an equilibrium that supports the ecosystem that supports us. And, you know, with the second law of thermodynamics, you know, entropy is supposed to happen where actually things are supposed to break down. But the DNA on this planet, which is mostly microbes, for four billion years has managed to keep an equilibrium that has supported not only life, complex life, getting more and more, and it's, that's not supposed to happen. So that equilibrium, right, that equilibrium is what we're trying to maintain because the microbiome, it can move to a different equilibrium. It, it will survive. I mean, you know, but we may not. And that's the central message really of the book is that this ecosystem, not only is our planet delicate, you know, um, is the natural world, but this equilibrium that supports our ecosystem. I mean, we can't live in a world, you know, that with a methane atmosphere. I mean, you know, we, you know there are many other <laughs> extremes or even, you know, we, we get too far out of this equilibrium, the safe zone, and, you know, we can't survive. And so, anyway, that that's kind of a bigger, just philosophical message. David, honestly, thank you. I hope everyone picks up a copy of your new book, The Voyage of Sorcerer 2, out now. Thank you for being such an enlightening guest here on the <laughs> Show. I appreciate that. Thank you for great questions. Wonderful Thanks. to see you. Until next time. Thank you for listening to The Accutron Show. To listen to all of our shows, visit AccutronWatch.com. Remember to check out our special edition Accutron products in collaboration with La Paulina Cigars, Estabrook Pens, Asseline Publishing, and Stave Puzzles. To learn more about the world of Accutron, follow us on Instagram at Accutron Watch. From New York City, until next time, Accutron Time. This is Bill McCuddy. <laughs>